At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Abba there singing about the theme of this week, money. Some of the richest and most powerful people in the world gathered in Davos, Switzerland. One thing you can count on is the stability and a great economy, a great business environment in the state of Georgia, and we're going to keep rocking and rolling. Governor Brian Kemp was there too. But at the state capitol, the money mood was more along the lines of Pink Floyd. You get a good job with more pay and you're okay. As Budget Week got underway with lots of talk about jobs, pay raises, and a less rosy economic outlook. This is a year where there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. It's week three of the Georgia General Assembly, and this is Gold Dome Scramble, a pop-up podcast from Political Breakfast and WABE News in Atlanta. Hey there, I'm Susanna Capaluto, politics editor with WABE, and with me are our politics reporters, Rahul Bali and Sam Greenglass. Later, we'll be joined by our education reporter, Martha Dalton, to talk about what lawmakers are thinking this year regarding students, teachers, and schools. Welcome, Sam and Rahul. Hello. Hello. So let's talk about Davos. There's been a lot of criticism from the right on some talk shows, especially of Governor Kemp hobnobbing with the rich in Switzerland. I heard a lot of the, uh, we don't really like the rich chatter, and why does Governor Kemp support it, and why is he there? It just felt super, I would like to say provincial to me, and a real lack of realization on how Georgia is truly tied to international business. Um, Maybe it's a bit my European perspective, but uh, I don't see Davos as a place that's any different from, say, Aspen. So (laughs) what was your perception of uh, Kemp's visit there? Well, the reality is that new foreign investment in Georgia topped $8 billion last year. Uh, Georgia has staffers in a dozen global markets around the world, including outposts in Germany and Japan, which have been around for 50 years now as of this year. But to the point of pushback that you make about the glitz of Davos and whether that undercuts Kemp's brand as this, you know, regular Athens construction guy standing up for hardworking Georgians, I think that is true, but people increasingly expect their governor to be a top salesperson for the state. And as these new investments have come into Georgia, especially over the last couple of years, I think people around the state recognize that that is part of the governor's job. Uh, And also before Raul 
pitches in here. I just want to note, you know, we did a really great job uh, hosting uh, from Savannah this year, and I'm hoping that next year WAB <laughs> has the, the budget for us to go to Davos, yep. right? Cold Hope Scramble from Davos. Let me first second what Sam said there about us going to Davos. And look, there's a portion of the conservative movement that looks at the World Economic Forum in Davos and similar gatherings as a bunch of elitists, a bunch of globalists. And that's what brings us to Tuesday. Traditionally, state budget hearings are kicked off by the governor, but the governor was in Davos. So he had to zoom in. And so he defended why he was there. I'm very proud of my conservative values. I'm also not afraid to stand up and share them and how good they are and what our state's been doing uh, with others around the country or others around the world, even when I may be surrounded by a few people that disagree with us. Clearly unapologetic, clearly saying that, look, as as you guys say, he is the salesman for the state of Georgia. Uh, the governor has now continued from Davos. He's actually doing meetings in Hamburg. He has been meeting with Korean companies. We've had, you know, an influx of Korean companies, uh, for example, Hyundai and, and their massive project in South Georgia. So the governor is trying, you know, to strike that line of the messaging of economic development, but also a messaging aimed at, you know, working, as, as he says, for hardworking Georgians. And just to circle back to where we started this conversation, this pushback to Davos as a place where, you know, global elitists gather to, to d- dangle the strings uh, of the world's economy and policy. Some of that is rooted in conspiracy theories and its rhetoric you often hear from far-right candidates, including from former U.S. Senator David Perdue on the campaign trail back in May. I put this question to Professor Charles Bullock at UGA, uh, whether, you know, there is a broad contingent of uh, Republican voters here in Georgia who might believe some of those conspiracy theories and ding Kemp for going over to Davos. And Bullock pointed out to me that, hey, look who won the primary. It was Governor Kemp who ran in part on his ability to bring in economic development, not David Perdue. Well, let's get into the budget hearings themselves. They can be boring, tedious, but so revealing. What did y'all learn? So let's do a little geek speak. First of all, I am an economist by training. That's actually what my degree is. So I really? actually, <laughs> if anyone in our audience wants to go watch one person in the budget hearings, it's the state economist, Dr. Jeffrey Dorfman, who is an appointee of Governor Kemp. And his specific responsibility is looking at the money that's going into the budget, the revenues, the taxes, the money that comes into the state of Georgia. And and one of the really big takeaways is, you know, there's this whole discussion. The state budget last year was $60 billion and the surplus was $6 billion. So the question is, well, why can't just the budget be $36 billion this year? One of the two most interesting things that jumped out at me, the first thing was in the last budget year, the state of Georgia collected $3 billion in capital gains taxes. That's the money that comes in if you sell some stock and you make money, that's the taxes you pay on it. Or if you sell your business and that's the taxes you pay. The stock market did not do as well last year. Actually, it did pretty bad last year. He basically said, you can't expect any of that $3 billion to come in. Also, 
state corporate income taxes in the last budget year, $2.5 billion. He also does not expect that kind of money to come in for a number of reasons. You know, will corporations be able to continue to pass increasing costs to you and me? Also, there's some changes in how corporate taxes are handled in the state of Georgia. Can you expect that much money to come in? So his warning was, hey, y'all got to be careful about the money coming in. You know, it may not be as much as you thought. That's the reason they've aimed for kind of some lower numbers. The other interesting thing was this whole discussion. Is the Georgia economy attached to the U.S. economy? The U.S. can have a recession and Georgia cannot have one. Also, Georgia can have a recession and state revenues could still rise or state revenues can fall without Georgia having a recession. These are all separate events and we need to understand that we are not tied that tightly to the national economy and that revenues can vary surprisingly. The other couple of things uh, that I took away from Dr. Dorfman was his warning about workforce. Are there enough people in Georgia for the current jobs, you know, considering how many job openings there are already, and then all the new jobs? And then in the Q&A, a lot of questions about housing, affordable housing, corporations owning housing. That's a lot of what that conversation was about. Sam, what was interesting to you? So generally, most conversation about the budget, at least in the last two years is pretty rah-rah. You know, when you hear the governor's state of the state address, things are exciting and we're funding all of our priorities. But Budget Week gives us a chance to hear from leaders in so many different parts of the government. And, you know, when they get up to the podium, they're also touting their wins and thanking lawmakers for funding their priorities. But you do hear in between these little nuggets that make you perk up and say, hmm. For example, we heard from University of Georgia System Chancellor Sonny Perdue, who noted that enrollment is down overall across the system, and that's going to lead to cuts. Uh, he called it a demographic cliff that the system is facing, with only six of uh, 20 campuses in the system actually making money right now. Uh, and then we also heard from public health director Kathleen Toomey, who said that Georgia's maternal mortality rate actually got worse over the pandemic, despite Georgia's rate already being one of the worst in the nation. So in this moment when, you know, the, the administration is touting how well positioned they are for the upcoming year, you do get to see these little glimmers of, of challenges that the state is facing in this moment. Let's take a break. This is Gold Dome Scramble from Political Breakfast. I'm Susanna Capaluto. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
Welcome back to Gold Dome Scramble with WABE, Sam Greenglass and Raul Bali. And joining us now is WABE education reporter Martha Dalton. Welcome, Martha. Good morning, everybody. What's up, Martha? Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Martha, we are really glad to have you because at least last session, so much of what we were talking about, it seemed like every day of session was school-related stuff. Like, it almost felt like an education session. But... So much of it was focused not on funding, but on, you know, these hot button social issues that caused a lot of controversy and pushback within the Capitol. You know, I'm thinking about legislation, looking at how race is taught in schools or whether transgender kids can play on their school sports teams. I'm wondering, is that what we are hearing this year or does it feel like a departure from that? Right. Well, this year, actually, it feels a little bit more like the focus is money, honestly. I mean, teachers and college professors are getting $2,000 bonuses. Uh, The Hope Scholarship has been restored, or excuse me, that's the governor's proposal to restore, to fully restore Hope. And what's interesting to me so far this year is that as much as Governor Kemp has touted his conservative principles, There are parts of this budget proposal that are very pleasing to Democrats. And when the HOPE program was cut in 2011, you know, that caused a lot of feuds within the Democratic Party. So that move is pleasing to a lot of them. But beyond that, and still on the money theme, the school funding formula seems like it'll be a big issue this year. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that formula was developed in 1985, and it's only been tinkered with since then. So we'll see if this is the year that it actually gets kind of an upgrade. But that's really um, what the focus seems like this year is sort of this departure from what you said, Sam, on these sort of social issues and maybe a little bit more of a focus on um, the fiscal aspects of, uh, of schools and funding schools. You know, one of the things that I always mention to people is education, when you combine K through 12 and the University System of Georgia is the absolute biggest part of the nearly, well, now more than $30 billion budget. $11 billion uh, is proposed towards towards K through 12, and the University System of Georgia is another $4 billion. I do want to... St- um, talk even more specifically about teachers. What do teachers really want out of this session? You know, that's 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 something we always hear. It's one of those days I look forward to when teachers come to the Capitol and we get to talk to them. What do they want out of this session? Right. Well, you might assume that it's money, especially because Georgia is about in the middle of the states when it comes to teacher salaries. And this has been the focus. It has been a focus for the governor. But I think they really want to feel like they're respected by lawmakers. You know, when you pass laws telling teachers how they need to teach, what they can't teach, um, or books that they can't assign, you're kind of sending this message that, you know, we don't really trust you. And teachers have told me that they don't really feel like they're treated like professionals a lot of the time, that people making the laws don't really know what it's like to be in their shoes. And even though you mentioned, uh, Raul, the day where they all come to the Capitol, Most of the time, teachers are busy teaching, so they don't necessarily have time to kind of plug in and follow a lot of the bills, certainly not with the precision that you guys follow them. So a lot of times when these bills are passed and signed into law, 
a lot of teachers find out how the legislation will actually affect them when they're trained on them in the fall. So for example, like the divisive concepts bill that was passed last year, a lot of teachers may have heard, you know, about it as it was sort of moving through the legislature and may have had some sort of passing idea with how that might play out. But the reality is that they don't really know how that will affect them in the classroom until, you know, they walk in in the fall and then, you know, their principal has set up training for how to handle uh, complaints about divisive concepts. So I think really um, for teachers, you know, sort of the ongoing issue is kind of show us that you respect us. Have we seen some of the effects of these laws passed last session play out in classrooms yet? I'm thinking, you know, the bill about the law about critical race theory and about trans kids in sports. Like, have we seen those tangibly affect kids in classrooms or it's hard to tell still, you know, being one semester in basically to these laws? Exactly. I think you hit it on the head is that we're one semester in. And what I can say is teachers have told me basically they've been just sort of confused by a lot of it, you know, that it's created a lot of confusion in what they can and can't say. Uh, There was an incident in Decatur, in the Decatur City Schools, where a teacher used a racial slur in class. Now, this was a a physics teacher, a white physics teacher. So it, it wasn't a situation where the context could be possibly explained by, you know, we were teaching Mark Twain or something like that. And the teacher was reassi- has been reassigned while the investigation is going on. And I asked Will Wade, the sponsor of you know the Divisive Concepts Bill, would this violate Divisive Concepts? And oddly enough, using a racial slur in class does not violate the law. So it's it's been a little bit interesting to see how this has played out because when the bill was going through the legislature last year, you know, that was one of the concerns. Will this be applied in situations like that where obviously, you know, racist behavior is taking place? The sponsors at the time were saying, of course, you know, of course it will. But in that situation, the the law didn't really apply. So it's kind of interesting to see so far how it's working. It may be that, you know, down the road, there will be some more clarity. Every school board has had to adopt a policy about how to handle any complaints that might come up. Maybe time will tell how effective the law has been and how it's sort of being applied and whether it's being applied evenly across districts. Martha, in talking about sort of this um, thing about vague laws sometimes hitting schools and lawmakers maybe not knowing exactly the day-to-day school operations and what teachers go through, what would you say is currently the biggest issue in schools in Georgia? Let me start by uh, giving a disclaimer that I do think it really depends on your school. But for a lot of schools, especially in low income areas, it's learning loss, you know, um, what's happened during the pandemic. Um, And not just with schools being closed, because, you know, Georgia schools were given the option to reopen. So some opened earlier than others. But then you have to remember that there was also quarantining. So sometimes kids would might miss school for five days or something like that, then they'd have to catch up that kind of thing. So I think that's what schools are really trying to figure out right now is how to catch kids up. But also with that, we're seeing an increase in behavior problems because when schools return to in-person learning, kids have been out for so long and they didn't really have to, you know, abide by the, the sort of group 
rules, you know. So that's caused some issues for districts. Uh, we've seen that, especially in Gwinnett, um, as they're trying to figure out what their discipline policy is going to be. But also, I want to point out that the bus driver and substitute teacher shortages have really hamstrung schools. Um, I spoke to Claire Suggs about this recently. She's a senior policy analyst with the Professional Association of Georgia Educators. Here's what she had to say about that. You know, buses may be running double routes, so they're getting to the classroom late. That disrupts the learning, you know, for the children, the students who are getting there late. But it also disrupts instruction for the kids who are there on time. That teacher needs to stop what he or she is doing, get the late students kind of situated, and then catch them up and then resume instruction. And of course, the substitute shortage is also causing schools to sort of shuffle things around, and that puts more responsibility on classroom teachers. Hey, Martha, so during the budget hearings, there was that discussion about learning loss. And and there's, you know, some millions of dollars that have been put in the budget for learning loss. What does that actually look like in schools? That's a great question. And part of the federal requirement is that 20% at least has to be spent on learning loss. So when schools got this unprecedented amount of money, part of it had to be used for that. Like you said, Raul, yes, a lot of them are investing in what they call high dosage tutoring, you know, tutoring in small groups. APS, for example, has extended the school day. So kids go to school for in elementary school for 30 minutes longer during the day. So a lot of schools are using that 30 minutes to tutor kids in small groups and give them sort of extra support. What the research says is that that is the most effective way to catch them up. So that's what a lot of Metro Atlanta, Metro Atlanta districts are doing with their money. They're also investing in summer programs, a lot of them. Experts will tell you that that summer programs may not be quite as effective because you can't really require kids to attend summer school. You can try. <laughs> you can strongly recommend it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can offer sort of incentives like, you know, free transportation, you know, f- free meals, that kind of thing. Those are the kinds of things that schools are looking at to try to get kids uh, to where they need to be. So a lot of the things that, Martha, you've mentioned, we have seen pop up in the governor's budget proposal, at least to some extent. You know, there's this $2,000 pay raise for teachers and school employees, a program to help convert parapros into full-time teachers. You know, that's addressing the staffing issue. There's also this one-time grant money for school security, for learning loss. But when we zoom out and look at the big picture, something that we hear come up a lot is this word QBE the funding formula. Can you just give us a quick one-pager on what exactly that means and how schools are funded in Georgia? Sure. I don't know how quick it will be, but <laughs> but I can... <laughs> we just did... We once did... I can what try. was it, Martha? Martha and I once did... And what's it? Several years ago when they were going to do QBE and we got a whole lesson with, with someone that puts it together. Remember that, Martha? Yes. We said on the phone, I think it was like all morning long explaining right. how QBE works. So we don't have all morning, but but it helps a lot. Once you go through it, you'll never forget how it's funded. <laughs> right, right. Now, but I, w- I 
won't be able to go into that painstaking detail. But what I can tell you is that in Georgia, schools have three main funding sources. So the federal government, which contributes a small amount of money, uh, then the state, and then, of course, local taxes. Um, And the state uses this formula, as Sam mentioned, called QBE, which stands for Quality Basic Education. And it was developed in 1985. It's been modified a little bit since. Um, It's a student-based funding formula. So essentially, the best way I can sort of summarize that is that schools get money based on the number of students they have, but then also there are other factors that may give them more money per student or less money per student, just depending. So lawmakers are talking about revising it this year. And one of the missing pieces, I think this is really key, is uh, a lot of education experts have said Georgia doesn't specifically provide funding in its formula for students in high poverty areas. And part of the reason this is significant is because we're just one of six states that don't do that. So Georgia's kind of an outlier in that respect. And last week, I asked Atlanta Superintendent Lisa Herring her thoughts about adding that funding to QBE. And here's what she had to say about that. I'm excited that there is this opportunity for us to explore that more deliberately because Atlanta is not alone as a public school system and that space of being able to identify need and that's operating through equity, making certain that everyone gets what they need. Now, she said that Atlanta is not alone there, and that's true. It's not the only district that would benefit from a poverty weight in uh, state funding, but it does have a higher percentage of students living in poverty than most metro districts. And I just wanted to add that several years ago, and Raul, I'm sure you remember this, uh, then Governor Nathan Deal put together a commission to study QBE, and they made some recommendations But nothing ever really came of that. So we have seen this movie before, but it will be interesting to see if this will be the year that lawmakers really tackle QBE and address that problem of poverty. And, you know, in the in the state budget hearings, the state school superintendent, Richard Woods, was asked about it. And I think my big takeaway is. Yes, changes should be made to QBE. You got to look at QBE. But his suggestion was to do it piecemeal, a little at a time to see the effect versus there are other lawmakers who want to junk the whole thing and come up with a new formula. That may just be the starting point of how this is all done. Is 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 it a small approach or a big approach? Right, exactly. I think the small approach does seem to make sense because QBE uh, does deliver money to schools as it is. So, and certainly while changes need to be made and it does need some updating, it seems like if you were to overhaul the whole thing, we're not really sure how that would how that would work. And we, we kind of know how QBE works. So it does seem to make sense to make these changes to the existing formula as opposed to scrapping it. But we'll see what they decide. One, one thing I remember about QBE that, I, that, that really struck me in terms of the funding is if you have English as a second language, if you, if you have a school with a lot of English as a second language students, you get more money than if you are a school with poor students. Like poverty is just not considered. Also, high achievers get more money. Um, and then some of it is special needs also. So that's how how schools can kind of pull more money from the pot is if they have kids in special needs and high achieving kids. 
It's an interesting formula. Right. They give more money for things like gifted programs and, um, like you said, special needs programs. But poverty per se is nowhere mentioned. Um, so that's it's, right. it's just very interesting. Martha Dalton, WABE education reporter, thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back before the end of the session. Yes. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you, Martha. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Gold Dome Scramble. Our producer is Kevin Rinker. Don't forget our Mothership podcast, Political Breakfast. It drops every Wednesday. We'll see you next week. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.